Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, June 24th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, June 27th, 2021. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-host, Emily Scott. Our third co-host, Jasmine, is out this week. How's it going, Emily? I'm doing all right. Um, They lifted the COVID state of emergency today in New York, um, which is big, which is very big. Yeah. I knew something was up when I went to the pizza shop and you could sit down. Oh. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, okay, no more pizza to go. This is it's different. This is different. The benchmarks, man. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So on today's episode, we have a couple of special things for you. We're going to kick it off first with another installment of our partnership with the NYU National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences Center for Investigation of Environmental Hazards. And Emily is going to kick us off with our local segment. Go for it. All right. Um, So I am so excited to have Dr. Stephanie Sterling on with us today. Stephanie works at the NYU Langone Health Brooklyn Hospital. She's the section chief of infectious disease, the hospital epidemiologist, and she's the co-lead of the NYU uh, Vaccine Treatment and Evaluation Unit Brooklyn site. Um, And there are only 10 of those VTEUs in the U.S., and this is the most recent one. Um, so, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. I really appreciate it. It's so exciting to have you. Um, obviously, you the type of work you've been doing uh, has been in full front of the media for over a year at this point um, in a way that, you know, I, I'm not used to seeing. I don't know if this was like a this whole year has been. Uh, I'm, I'm sure this whole year has been a really unique experience um, from your perspective as well. It's honestly been quite surreal. Um, yeah. It's funny. I was just talking with a colleague and she was saying that uh, it's weird to no longer have to describe to someone what an infectious disease doctor mm, does. Because right. before this, we usually have to do that. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I guess, um, so for the offer, there's anyone in the audience who just wants a refresher on what an infectious disease uh, doctor investigator does. Um, what is that? What is that blurb that you would normally have given in the past? <laughs> um, so that blurb before everyone became uh, aware of a virus that would cause a pandemic is mm-hmm. that we specialize in treatment and management and diagnosis of um, medical problems that are related to infections. And so that's not just viruses like um, SARS-CoV-2. It also includes various bacterias and also, uh, sorry, bacteria, um, and also uh, fungus um, and other uh, things like that. We usually manage chronic infections such as HIV and acute infections um, that occur both in and out of the hospital. Yeah. I mean, I, I got a note um, at previously on the show in past years before COVID hit, um, we've talked about how infectious diseases is sort of my own personal house of horrors. Like everything you just said, I just like just sends like a really like nasty tingling down my spine. So I it's and it's the work you do is just so vital. Um, and just personally, I know before we even get even getting into the interview, I just want to let you know that like the fact that you dedicate your life to investigating this is just like so inspiring to me because um, it's something that I just would like shut down. <laughs> I like can't process. That's why when people start talking about, you know, like accounting, 
Right. I, I shut down. But, you know, <laughs> you it. mentioned bacteria, virus, or parasite. I get really excited. So cool. Um, all right. So let's dive into some of uh, these other questions I have for you. Um, so you are the head of the uh, vaccine research clinic in Brooklyn, as I mentioned. So could you tell us a little bit more about that clinic? Yeah, so this is um, something that just got started in really after the pandemic hit. Um, what we do there, what we've done there so far is focused on um, researching pot- a pot- potential COVID vaccines. And the grand scheme of things, we look forward to branching out beyond COVID vaccines. Um, and we're starting to do that now, actually. We have a uh, a survey going on within the community to ask to try to evaluate some of the reasons why people may be hesitant to get uh, this particular vaccine, because most likely that hesitancy will branch into such uh, something such as flu vaccine um, hesitancy, which in our community we have definitely seen. So um, we look forward to less COVID-centric um, uh, work, but in the setting of COVID, the reason why we exist, very honestly, is NYU has this VTEU uh, up and running before COVID uh, in about 2019. Um, and when COVID hit, essentially all non-COVID research and work um, just had to be put on pause because uh, we needed absolutely anyone who was able to do research or was able to be on the floors helping with care. Uh, really focus on uh, caring for patients with COVID, investigating how the immune system reacts to COVID, how blood, you know, what's what's causing this vasculitis. Um, we needed all hands on deck in the setting of this public health emergency. And because we needed such massive numbers of people to help uh, by participating in research trials, and we also really needed people that were previously underrepresented in this work, such as those we saw uh, admitted to our hospitals and dying, um, uh, Black, African-American, Hispanic, Latinos. Um, The reason why we started this Brooklyn site was so that we could really help make sure that that population, we're based in Sunset Park, that population is better represented in all this research because before um, this population has not been so uh, well represented. Um, Which is definitely something that we've talked about on the show, um, if memory serves, and it's a really important issue. And it's, it's really great that there's people on the ground doing that, that research. Um, And I just want to note something that you said that was really interesting. So you are a doctor, obviously, as I mentioned, were you, focus more on research at the time that COVID hit and you had to transition back to patient care? Or were are you always doing a mix of, of both? Um, I did. So no, I'm much more of a clinician, to be very honest. And that's where my, my heart lies is working in the hospital and working with patients and um, keeping people out of the hospital. Um, I've done research before and I did research in uh, human papillomavirus and that was mostly bench work and but something with COVID you know we needed this population to be better represented and able to participate in these trials we needed this vaccine center open um, and that's where for me it was the pivot actually from uh, from clinical to 
also now including more of this research. What's really fascinating for me about the clinical research aspect is that we get to really be at the forefront of the the bench or kind of that nitty gritty, meaty, uh, basic science research. Like where I sit now, uh, I get to be at that where that bench work translates into the bedside um, practices. And so mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a very humbling place to be able to uh, play a role. And by benchwork, do you mean like lab benchwork? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Is there is there anything in particular you want residents of Brooklyn to know about the research clinic? Are you looking for volunteers or um, survey takers or anything at the moment? So at this time, we are not actively enrolling in any treatment um, trials. Uh, We were enrolling for AstraZeneca and we, um, man, our Brooklyn people showed up and volunteered uh, at levels that uh, was absolutely amazing. Um, So thank you to the Brooklyn community (laughs) for that. (laughs) Um, We are actually um, going into clinics that are associated with NYU to do uh, these surveys in both English and Spanish to really just ask about knowledge of um, vaccines um, and uh, reasons why someone may not want to get a vaccine. Also to ask about where do they, where do these people get their information from to get a better understanding really of our community and how we can help them serve this community. I think one role that infectious disease doctors have had to realize that we play, especially in this pandemic, is really trying to help make sure that we are advocates for good information, for education, um, and uh, just trying to get the... uh, There's so much... You know, it's been frustrating to see so much Mm -hmm. kind of misinformation and disinformation get out there that... um, We've had to kind of start flexing a little bit more of um, uh, a more vocal um, role within our communities to help um, be a kind of a voice of, of good information. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we are focusing on now. We look forward to some more um, uh, treatment uh, trials coming on board shortly. Um, and so within the NYU system or looking at the NYU VTEU website, um, participants will be able to see what's going on. But also once those are up and running, um, probably anyone in and around Brooklyn mm-hmm. will know exactly what we're looking for. Great. That's awesome. So you mentioned misinformation, um, which we as on the show are also we have also talked about that. Is Are there specific things that you're hearing come up a lot when you're doing your current and, you know, looking into vaccine hesitancy? Oh man. (laughs) Is there a lot? (laughs) uh, There's a lot. It's on one hand, I remember when the pandemic first started, I turned to one of my colleagues and I said, we're fighting this on two fronts. We're fighting this on kind of the scientific front, the treatment front, the medical front, where we need one big skill set, which is how to care for these patients, how to keep these patients alive, um, um, and how to assess, you know, how to make hospital beds and and do this. And we're also fighting it on this kind of social media um, internet front where it's a completely different skill set. So that's been a huge challenge with this. Um, Thankfully, 
Uh, it's not my job to do that. Um, we can leave a lot of that to Dr. Fauci and um, some other yeah. more <laughs> bigger, bigger, um, more recognizable faces. Um, common, I mean, questions I'm asked and have to explain or are asked to talk about every single time is always um, concerns about these vaccines and fertility, concerns about these vaccines and, uh, you know, can they transmit to COVID? Um, through these vaccines, the question, to, the answer to that is no. None of the vaccines that are currently marketed are or have emergency use authorization are live vaccines. So that means that none of them can actually. It's, it's impossible for any of these vaccines to give COVID to the person that is receiving the injection. Um, it does not affect fertility. Um, the over uh, overseeing um, organizations. Um, uh, such as ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, have also come out and made statements that it's safe for pregnant women to um, receive the vaccine. Um, we're creating a database uh, for pregnant women and breastfeeding women. Not database, that's the wrong word. We're creating um, kind of a, a bank of samples from um, pregnant women and uh, women who are breastfeeding, who are vaccinated, who, who, or who are getting vaccinated, so that we can continue to study this because it's of such interest. But there's, um, it's safe in those populations. And then there's some like crazier claims, um, you know, like the magnetism one. Oh my god, that's been coming out. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's it's just really hard. You know, people yeah. can be very motivated to some misinformation out and um, people can you know be really you know looking for answers and and how to put what's this craziness that's going on in the world into a way they can understand and it's um it's tough it's mm -hmm. tough for everyone yeah and you mentioned that the COVID vaccines that are out right now, none of them are, are live vaccines. Um, I've heard a lot about mRNA vaccines. And I have a two-part question, essentially. Um, are all COVID vaccines that are in the U.S. right now mRNA? And what is an mRNA vaccine? Yes. Excellent <laughs> question. And I think this is also where some of the fear comes from, because I think most people who are not involved in science and research the last time they heard about mrna was you know yeah uh, exactly yeah. <laughs> in junior high or in high school and all we know is mrna is pretty much my genetics and part of that so i can understand why uh someone who doesn't live in that world would say wait a minute this is going to change and be passed on to from cell to cell and change who i am so i can understand where that comes from completely so um, our genetic makeup is stored as DNA. And then RNA is really um, kind of the way that the genetic message or the DNA gets translated into proteins. And what are proteins? Proteins are, are what makes us up. So um, our every pretty much everything in us from cells to uh, hormones to you know, everything, enzymes in our bodies, all proteins. And so uh, to get from the DNA, which is the message, um, which is passed from, you know, from mom to baby, um, 
to proteins, which is what I physically am made of, you need RNA to do that. And there's various forms of RNA that uh, help make that message. So messenger RNA is one of those forms. It's a very short-lived or transient form. And so this vac- these vaccines, only two of the three currently uh, uh, approved via emergency use um, in the United States are messenger RNA. And that's the ones we hear commonly, and the only ones are the Pfizer and Moderna. Um, it's a fascinating uh, platform for vaccines because it's essentially, and this is a simple way I like to think about it, is that if you think about kind of um, the whole process of making um, antibodies or making proteins as kind of a, like a, you know, a diner, we have so many diners in New York. So if the DNA is, um, uh, or so what the messenger RNA is, is kind of that order that goes to the short order cook, you know, like uh, eggs and bacon or this type of omelet or grilled cheese or coffee or bola. And so um, within that system that already works, what these two vaccines are doing the, by using this messenger RNA is essentially just kind of submitting a new order like, oh, yeah, hey, by the way, as you're making the spinach and, and, and feta omelet, also make this other order right now. And so they crank out that order and that order in this is going to be for an antibody against uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID. And then that order that, hey, you know, on a piece of paper, make this, gets ripped up and discarded within really you know, about two days. And so doesn't that order doesn't get you know, become part of my, my genetic makeup. It's nothing that I will pass on to a child if I become pregnant now or ever. Um, so it's a very short-lived order. But uh, you know, that message to make antibodies lasts for a long time. Um, so that's really how that system works. And the whole idea behind vaccines is um, to help my body make a, an army uh, to respond to an attack before the attack comes. And so that's the idea. The idea is that my body, my army, or my immune system will recognize this SARS-CoV-2 virus um, and be able to attack it. And the idea of a vaccine is um, it's going to make that army before I even get infected. So that if I do get infected, I've got this army of reserves ready to go be called out to the fight. Um, And it really gives you a jump and helps prevent um, uh, what the literature has really proven is that it helps prevent severe infection, um, helps prevent death, and it does also seem to help prevent even um, milder infection as well. Well, I love a good metaphor, and um, <laughs> that I think was a great explanation of how that stuff works. Thank you. I, I did want to ask as well, I know that so, um, some of the concerns that I've heard a lot about are just like how new this vaccine is and how people maybe worry of of getting it because, you know, there's not enough research hypothetically. Have you heard that? And is there, you know, a response that you like to give regarding that? I have definitely heard that. And uh, for so many of us, including those of us who work in infectious disease and been in the hospital working, uh, this is a new way, this is a new form of vaccines, it is, uh, to be using in humans. However, the amazing 
um, benefit of of living in the United States and of their previously being good, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Good investment in basic science is that this technology has been, uh, they've been working on the research for this technology for many, many years. Um, so while it's new to us and it's new to be using it in a person, uh, at, especially at this scale, uh, they have been working on technology for many years and kind of, pro- I mean, we got honestly really lucky that they um, had already been planning. I think, I think I read they were planning on using it um, to try and uh, work on flu vaccines. They had already been using it uh, to look at um, for Ebola vaccines. And there's one other vaccine they're using it for. I just blinked on. But so we got really lucky that all this investment and work had already been done. And so this platform existed and was basically about to go prime time when Mm -hmm. the SARS-CoV-2 was identified and when they recognized, you know, when they, uh, China went out and and published the genome for the virus Mm -hmm. and so thanks to that they were able to say wait a minute do a complete pivot and able to do this very quickly so to me it's a sign that um and the fact that it's working so well uh to me is actually reassuring that our kind of research pipeline um uh has been robust has been good and then Every, so the trials happen much quicker than normal, but um, that is because usually things kind of plot along. You have to um, do a small trial, you know, get funding for it, do a small trial, put out the, all the information, get more funding. And it's a very long process, partly because, you know, this was, let's say, Moderna. They're not going to necessarily have the capacity to put the billions of dollars into um, such a large uh, production without um, no one's going to invest that amount of money. But what happened with this is that we're in a public health emergency and this is where um, the government, our federal government said, we will put all the money into all the production. We will do all of that as you guys are, are doing the research. And so as a researcher, I can definitely say that no corners were cut um, but you had a lot of things going on in parallel that usually are much more sequential. So that's kind of why things moved uh, at the fastest pace that any of us have ever seen with respects to production and of vaccines and um, getting these uh, basically into people's arms. The size of the trials were also designed to get um, information as quickly as possible. Uh, so a lot of um, kudos to our statisticians who helped figure out, you know, how big do we have to have these trials um, and help us figure out what are the safest endpoints to look at for that. And at this point, we've had people who, uh, we've had participants in trials for now over a year, the, the ones who participated in the phase one for Pfizer, Moderna, um, and, you know, everything is looking really good for them. Um, so I think that at this point, we've had so many millions of people that have received the vaccine, we continue to, we, not me, the CDC continues to follow any safety concerns. So all of our normal checks and balances remain in place um, uh, so that we don't push things out too quickly and too precipitously So uh, and possibly do cause harm. So I think it's, it's reassuring um, that, uh, all of these 
you know, kind of um, all of these barriers so that we don't do harm remain in place, even in the midst of this global pandemic, the likes of which we haven't seen in a hundred years. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. My last question is, um, you know, the state of emergency in New York did end today, um, Thursday, not the air, not airing date. Is it still important for anyone who's unvaccinated to get vaccinated? It is. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, I actually, I was wondering why the flag outside of our hospital was now at uh, full staff, whereas it's been at half mm. or full mass. It's been at half mass for over a year because wow. of COVID. And I noticed today that it was at full mast, mm-hmm. uh, if that's the proper way for that. So it is important for people to get vaccinated if they are not vaccinated at this time. And the reason for that is that we are seeing new variants pop up around the world. Uh, currently, the one we are most concerned about, honestly, is the Delta variant. This is the one that originally, that we, this is the one that was first kind of described as causing um, the large second wave in India. At this time, especially in New York, it's uh, causing, it's the reason for about a fifth of new COVID infections. Um, It looks like it is more more infectious. Um, But, and because, so if it's more infectious and the more people that get infected mean because a percentage of everyone who gets infected end up having to go to the hospital and then a percentage of those people do poorly. And so the more people you have getting infected, then the higher the number of people who need the hospital and unfortunately who do poorly. So the important thing is that the current vaccines that are approved in the United States um, appear to do very well against uh, these variants, including the Delta variant. They do well to protect against severe COVID, which is defined as needing the hospital, and they do well protecting against uh, less severe forms of COVID. So it's really important to still uh, get vaccinated, uh, fully vaccinated, if uh, not at this time. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Dr. Stephanie Sterling, for joining us today on the show. The work you're doing is so important, and we really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to Uh, share the wealth of knowledge and experience you have uh, about COVID and vaccinations. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you both ladies for that awesome segment. And um, Dr. Stephanie, more power to you. Please keep saving our lives every day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, guys. So we're going to go ahead and jump into our first music break of the day. This is a throwback track. I thought it'd be nice. This is the Commodores with Easy. We'll be right back. Wow. 
to make it Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be I'm not happy when I try to fake it No Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next segment, uh, we I'm super excited. We have a special guest, Miss Natalie James with the Reclaim Pride Coalition. How are you today? I'm doing great. Uh, and thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. No problem. Um, so I'm super excited about this interview. I was at Brooklyn Pride uh, about two weeks ago and I met Natalie in the street and she just really came forth with some really great energy. So I thought I'd bring her on the show and share with her, uh, share you guys, share with you guys um, a little bit about her story. So why don't you tell us about yourself and how you got involved with Reclaim Pride, the with the Reclaim Pride Coalition? Well, yeah, thanks. Uh, so just a little bit about myself. Um, I identify as a lesbian. Um, my mother is an immigrant from Colombia, from South America. And um, and I work as a tenant attorney um, uh, in Brooklyn. And I also um, am a unionized worker through my workplace. So those are you know a few things that I'm involved with besides, besides this uh, march. But um, when, this has been one of the biggest projects I've ever been involved in. Um, I helped to start what was called the Reclaim Pride Coalition back in 2018. I organized the first meetings of that group. And I also, um, and that group went on to um, organize the Queer Liberation March. And the first one happened in, uh, in 2019 for the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. And this, this coming one on Sunday will be the third Queer Liberation March. Uh, and it's and and the the main idea behind it is that we want to march. That's a people's protest march with no corporations, no police contingent, uh, and getting back to the roots of pride, which is a protest but also uh, a community celebration. Awesome, awesome! I love that. I love that you guys have that um, that really pure sort of energy around uh, the pride mission. So, tell me about the mission of the organization itself. Well, the 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 organization itself has been evolving. It's it's a pretty new organization. Um, when we first started in 2018, um, we kind of came. We kind of uh, uh, were forms uh, of groups that had marched together in the resistance contingent in the 2017 Pride March, right after you know um, uh, the Trump administration took over, and people wanted to sort of show that the Trump administration and the rise of the right had a unique threat to uh, pose a unique threat to the LGBTQ community. So we marched together, but um, but then after 2017, we were told by the organizers of the big corporate pride uh, parade that they weren't going to let us march together as a resistance contingent. And these were groups, everything from HIV uh, AIDS act advocacy groups like ACT UP and Housing Works to more leftist groups like the group I'm part of, uh, Democratic Socialists of America. 
And uh, so we kind of got together. And of course, if you tell a bunch of activists that you're not allowed to march together, what are the activists going to do? They're going to start organizing and, and agitating, right? Exactly. So we started to we started to organize. We we uh, we went to the um, to the to the pra- to the pride parade organizers and said these are our demands. But we didn't just stop at wanting to march again together. We wanted big changes like less policing. They were making people wear these wristbands that year that were just um, terrible in terms of freedom of assembly and everything like that. They were all those terrible barricades they put in the village to keep people from moving around and being, um, you know, and 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 assembling and protesting. Uh, really, um, you know, that's been something that's been uh, just awful about the at the about the pride parade ever since uh, Mayor Giuliani, quite frankly, in the '90s. They just the, the NYPD just loves those barricades, and of course, you know, the the bigger issue of the brutality of the NYPD against members of of the LGBTQ community, especially queer and trans people of color, you know? Um, so we wanted uh, the N- the NYPD not to be honored, not to be recognized in that march. Um, we wanted there to be no police uniforms uh, shown. Um, typically, there's they're given a, a place of honor right at the front of the march. We didn't want that. And we also didn't want those big corporate floats that just take over the entire event and allow organizations that harm society to actually make themselves look better, you know, by sponsoring these about the pride parade. So um, those were a couple big demands was like less of the corporate floats, no big, you know, police contingent, lower amounts of policing. But we were ignored. And and 2018 was not a great experience uh, in terms of participating in that parade. So with the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, we decided we would organize our own march. And uh, and in our very first year, um, we we organized a march without any corporate funding, without any uh, corporate floats and without a police contingent. And we drew 45,000 people to the streets in our first year. So there was, wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. There was a hunger for that. I think the community for a long time just had been alienated by the, by the commercial saturation, um, and police saturation of, of the other event. So, um, so we were, that was our first year. Um, and then in 2020, of course, COVID hit and we didn't even know if we'd put on a march, but after George Floyd was murdered um, and all the all the Black Lives Matter protests were happening, we decided we had to march in solidarity. So we did a march specifically in solidarity with Black Lives and against police brutality uh, in 2020. And um, and then interestingly and hor- horribly, at the end of that march, the NYPD attacked the peaceful marchers. Um, they um, I think somebody took a little sharpie out of their out of their bag and and squiggled around the uh, NYPD uh, logo on a, on a on a police car. And the the police then uh, called for reinforcements. They brought out their batons. They brought out their pepper spray. They arrested several people. They shoved people, injured people. And so, you know, to 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 for the NYPD to behave in that sort of way on the fiftieth anniversary on the on the fifty first anniversary of of a uprising, uh, the Stonewall riots. Um, that was against the police, that was um, against police brutality and police oppression, to then behave that sort of way at the end of a march commemorating that, at the end of a march specifically against police brutality, it really showed how much, you know, how much impunity the NYPD had. And I think my hope is that, you know, um, that the only, that something good could come of it in that, you know, more and more queer people, including white middle-class queer people, might begin to see how just interconnected and intertwined queer liberation is with um, police abolition, abolitionism, and uh, and issues of 
of ending the carceral and police state. Wow. So, uh, so after that March in 2020, now we have our March in 2021. And, um, and again, um, you know, we are, we're going to have it without a police contingent and without, um, and without uh, any corporate floats or funding. And in terms of the mission of the organization, I hope we continue to move on in that direction of, of really uh, focusing on, on, um, you know, push on, you know, anti NYPD work, anti police brutality work and anti carceral state work. Um, after, after the 2020 March, we worked closely with the anti-violence project uh, to sort of um, to, to, to advocate for the people that were, uh, were victimized by the NYPD that day. And we also uh, made sure that our, our uh, complaint was uh, included in Letitia, uh, Attorney General Letitia James's uh, lawsuit against the NYPD. And then we also tried to bring as much press as possible to what they did. And it happened to be right before the city budget was being voted on. So we hope that in some way that would help to, to maybe um, push for more cuts to their budget. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I'm hoping that, in, you know, t- we could you know, as we move forward as an organization, uh, continue that work of reaching out to maybe more mainstream LGBT organizations. And as we're better and better known, um, we were the only Pride March this year and last year. So uh, because of COVID, the corporate Pride March wasn't uh, wasn't held. So we've sort of, you know, continued to, I think, to rise in stature in terms of media coverage in terms of followers on on social media etc and i think that we need to use that stature in a positive way in a, that a way that might actually help people um in a in a practical life way as well as being a symbolically you know uplifting event you know so um so basically I, i'm hoping that we can continue that down that path of of pushing uh, mainstream you know, uh, especially white middle class or or or, uh, up, uh, or wealthy organizations, uh, in the direction of of solidarity with abolitionist work. I really appreciate how you have leveraged the dialogue. Oh, thank you. Absolutely, I, I think uh, I think that you know it's it's um, when when one's able to build up a brand or a platform or however you want to phrase it. Um, you know, I think that that, you know, it, that can be, that should be targeted towards improving people's lives, you know? Yes. And that is important because as mm-hmm. social justice organizations or social justice um, individuals, as we all are on objection to the rule, I think it is our collaborative effort um, around certain issues because we have spoken about the pride march and uh, the reduction of the police um, interference, if you will, Mm -hmm. or participation. We've spoken about a lot of things on this show that really are in alignment with what your organization is doing. And one of the reasons that I wanted to highlight what you're doing is because, you know, I had just learned about the march when I met you, but in just doing a little research, the reality is that um, when social justice organizations come together in alignment for a cause, they're so much more powerful and they reach so many more lives. So I really want to champion you and your organization for that, because I think that that is what we all need um, to just get our conversations and, and our causes to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. And and I have to say, you know, um, this is a, you know, just, just to be totally transparent, this is a majority white organization, kind of like New York City Democratic Socialists of America. It's it's a majority white middle class space. And um, we have had some, you know, tensions, you know, around that. I think it's sort of natural uh, in a way for, for spaces to have 
uh, tensions in terms of BIPOC activists um, joining the space. Um, and, um, you know, I think that one thing that another mission is more internal facing uh, moving forward, which is uh, trying to, to really focus on on um, improving the structure of our organization so that uh, we can we can absolutely um, be more uh, true to our ideals in terms of uh, anti-racist work and anti um, anti-police work. And uh, so that's something that that we're that we're very uh, conscious of and that we're 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 committing to doing, um, you know, uh, really concrete work in terms of skill building, education and uh, and solidarity work. That's amazing. Um, so where is the march and tell our listeners how they can support you and where they can show up at on Sunday. Uh, well, thank you. Yes. Uh, so, uh, the march is going to be in Manhattan. It's going to be, it's going to start at Bryant park. We're going to ask marchers to gather at the park at two 30 and then step off, step off should be around three. Uh, we'll then, we'll then march South and end uh, in, uh, Washington square park. We'll kind of pass by Stonewall uh, along the way. And, uh, so, for more information, you know, in terms of seeing a map of, of the route and so forth, um, uh, you can uh, go to uh, to uh, our Twitter account at Queer March uh, or our Instagram Instagram account, which has the same handle. Um, and same with, and then uh, there's also our website, reclaimprideNYC.org. And so those are all great resources in terms of finding the map and finding out more information. We also have made a real, real uh, effort to focus on accessibility for, for people with disabilities. So there will be a bus that people can sign up for to sort of ride at the front of the march, uh, but not have to walk the, the route. Um, there's also going to be a, a deaf contingent uh, towards the front of the march. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're really trying our best in terms of, of um, accessibility as well. Wow. That's really great. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show today. I definitely want to wish you the best of luck with the March and all of your future projects. I definitely think that um, your organization is, is moving in the right direction. You know, we need a lot more uh, collaborative work in social justice organizations across the gamut. And I'm here for it. I'm here to talk about it, be about it, open up spaces that are uncomfortable so that we can heal. And I definitely see that you guys are moving in that direction. And yeah, I just want to shout you out and appreciate the work you're doing and hope that in the future, um, we all can work together to really fight the causes um, in our lives that make the most difference for the most people. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You know, and, and I, I just want to emphasize, I just hope that we can as a community um, and as, as activists and organizers come together in, in real solidarity with each other. Like uh, one, one really um, uh, inspiring story that, that I learned when I was organizing the 2019 March with others was that the very first Pride March in 1970 uh, was, was organized by real revolutionaries. And they deliberately planned the, the march routes to pass by a women's detention facility that was in the village in Manhattan at the time. And there were women Black Panthers being held there. And so they deliberately passed by uh, and, and, they, they ch- and they chanted, free our sisters, free ourselves. So that to me, again, brings it back to solidarity and to um, just how intertwined queer liberation and abolition really is, you know? Thank you so much, Natalie. Um, I just had a quick question as well. You mentioned that um, your March is the only one being held in person this year. Is that right? That is that is correct. Yeah. And it was last year as well. 
Yeah. Okay, cool. I think I misstated that on a previous episode. Um, I, I thought the other March, uh, the the more mainstream March would be back. Um, but Wait, thank you I'm, so much. For I wasn't clarifying. clear on that either. Mm-hmm. Is that is that what's happening? Because I was totally thinking that both were happening. No, um, the other March uh, is not happening. Interestingly, the other March, I think because of Black Lives Matter protests and so forth, um, you know, has uh, has has tried to stay and also because of our march too, probably it's tried to stay relevant with the new the the new political times we're in in terms of uh, people pushing back against the police and um and they've put a five year ban on uh the NYPD marching in their in their march the Gay Officers Action League which is part of the NYPD cannot march with them for five years um but it you know it's been noted that it won't even start this year because there is no march <laughs> but um wow. but they're they're having a miniature um, sort of televised event of, I think, five floats, 500 marchers, and a few marshals. Um, and that will be televised, I think, either on ABC or NBC, one of the networks. Um, but um, but it will not be your typical, you know, 10 to 13 hour long, you know, pride parade. You know what I mean? Interesting. Thank you so much for clearing that out. Um, yeah. Because obviously I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, a- that's really interesting. And you know what? Rightfully so, because mm-hmm. you guys have definitely aligned with um, the masses, it seems, and the the causes that are important to a lot of people. And um, I'm really appreciative that you will be marching. You have been in solidarity and you are moving forward. You're moving forward with a really progressive agenda. And I really hope that your partnerships and, uh, you know, connectivity with other organizations uh, go smoother as we move forward because I know the challenges that exist there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we have to try to work around those things and listen, be supportive and helpful to one another. So. Oh, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Um, and I appreciate the work you all are doing a lot in terms of, I think, community radio and community sources of media are just essential. Um, and and, and uh, so it's very, very important work. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Natalie James, for being here today. We are going to go ahead and hop into our next music break before we get into a little bit of national and good news. The next song is by my current favorite artist. This is her. She just dropped a new album this week or EP or I don't know what she'd be doing. She dropped a little bit here and a little bit there. Uh, The song is called Change. We'll be right back. to the mayor can you hear me out wanna talk on all the issues that i care about speak free keep the peace when we say it loud meeting all my people at the city council pay attention so i know my rights education's gonna change the cycle volunteer i can help a life communities planting trees recycle if i'm just one person Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. So now we will hop into our national news segment for today. 
Uh, this story is drawn from an article on NPR. It's called It's an Outrage. Biden outlines new steps to curb surging gun violence. Um, and this by Alana Wise. So the president made it clear that he intends to approach crime prevention by investing in rather than defunding the investing in rather than defunding the police. He said in his address on Wednesday, the states could draw from the $350 billion in federal stimulus money to shore up police departments and vow to crack down on gun dealers who fail to run background checks as the White House seeks to combat the alarming rise in homicide rates in American cities. Wading into the national debate about whether the government should give police departments more resources or spend money on mental health and other social services instead, Biden made it clear where he stands in the argument. Citing the uptick in violence since the coronavirus pandemic forced millions of Americans out of work and into their homes for extended periods, his five-point proposal includes the following facts. Cracking down on gun sellers who violate federal laws with new zero-tolerance policies, giving additional support to local law enforcement to help their summer crime increases, investing in community violence intervention programs, expanding summer employment and services, particularly for youth and young adults, helping helping formerly incarcerated individuals successfully re-enter their communities. The president also mentioned aspects of gun control that would need to go through Congress, like universal background checks and banning high-capacity magazines. He said his plan will, quote, supercharge what works, while the White House continues to push Congress. Now, Biden has faced many criticisms from gun safety advocates who say that the White House has not made gun reform enough of a priority, despite his promise to curb the work of violent crime during his campaign. In the early months of Biden's presidency, the nation saw a number of mass shootings that prompted new calls for gun reform, including the March 16th Atlanta spa shootings and the March 22nd grocery store shootings in Boulder, Colorado. Since then, Biden has signed a series of executive actions on gun laws, calling calling America's gun violence an international embarrassment. The Department of Justice has also issued model legislation from which states can craft their own so-called red flag laws to temporarily temporarily remove guns from certain people. With Wednesday's speech, Biden aimed a blunt criticism for Republicans who say he is soft on crime. But he also tried to bridge the two flanks of his party, centrist Democrats alarmed by the spike in crime in cities and progressives who are pushing systemic changes to police departments that have long been accused of racial discrimination. Mr. Biden used the moment to call for Congress to pass legislative measures that would close background check loopholes, restrict assault weapons, and repeal gun manufacturers' immunity from lawsuits. He thinks that these, obviously he thinks that contributing more to the safety of Americans is a way to curb gun violence. Wow, that actually means funding the police. So this is problematic, obviously, um, a big op, um, story of contingency that we've been talking about a lot on this show. Um, yeah, it's it's another one of those, he said this and now he's doing that. Gun violence has been running rampant in our country forever, okay? Um, But obviously, over the last few years, it's been 
just contributing to the large amounts of deaths of Americans. And now it's actually facing, it's actually hurting the young Americans a lot more than it has been previously. Uh, there was a story in Brooklyn not too long ago and a couple of stories in New York recently where uh, children are being hurt in, in gun violence that is happening in communities. So this is um really controversial. What do you think, Emily? Yeah, it is. It's, it's interesting that that would be the move. I mean, I think we can all agree uh, or I would hope we all agree um, from our listener. At least, I don't know. You and I definitely agree um, that <laughs> yes. um, gun, like access to guns and gun violence in this country um, needs to be addressed in a significant way. But yeah, I mean, I it's a it's a certainly a controversial choice. I would say to choose to um, give extra funding to the police in in a time where that is really being, you know, questioned in our society. So yeah, definitely controversial to say the least. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's rather confusing. Like it's, you know, the whole concept of defunding the police has the older population in this country very scared, right? Because that is what they believe needs to happen to um, deal with violent crime. However, we see what happens when the police have more empowerment. Uh, I read an article today. Um, I forgot which news it was and about how the police department is having problems with recruitment and bringing new officers in because of all of the controversy going around about police brutality, which, you know, it's not surprising, but in the same context, like what is really happening here? Because I feel like by doing this, he's not acknowledging the big problem, obviously, and this is not the right way. Like, how about going after the NRA? How about trying to uh, talk about things like that as opposed to like, well, let's just give them more money and give them more cops. Like, I don't know. That shit just seems super counterproductive and I'm not here for it. Um, yeah. Maybe we should hop into the good news because this is not good right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready for you. I'm ready for you. All right. What you got for us, Emily? So this story comes from a June 21st AP article by Arnie Stapleton titled uh, Nasib Becomes First Active NFL Player to Come Out as Gay. And I apologize if I'm pronouncing the name wrong. Um, and I'm also relying heavily on quotes for this. So the article explains, quote, Las Vegas Raiders defensive Carl Na- Nasib Nasib uh, Nasib maybe uh, on Monday became the first active NFL player to come out as gay. Nasib, who is entering his sixth NFL season and second with the Raiders, announced the news on Instagram, saying he wasn't doing it for the attention, but because he felt representation and visibility were important. I just want to take a quick moment to say that I'm gay, Nasib said in his video message from his home in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I've been meaning to do this for a while now, but I finally feel comfortable enough to get it off my chest. Nasib added in a written message that followed the video that he agonized over this moment for the last 15 years and only recently decided to go public with his sexuality after receiving the support of family and friends. I am also incredibly thankful to the NF- uh, for the NFL, my coaches, and fellow players for their support, Nasib wrote. I would not have been able to do this without them. From the jump, I was greeted with the utmost respect and acceptance. Nasib, whose announcement came during Pride Month, added that he was donating $100,000 to the Trevor Project, a nonprofit that seeks to prevent suicides among uh, LGBTQ youth. 
The NFL family is proud of Carl for courageously sharing his truth today, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said in a statement. Representation matters. We share his hope that someday soon statements like this, like his, will no longer be newsworthy uh, as we march toward full equality for the LGBTQ plus community. We wish Carl the best of luck this coming season. Um, so this is huge coming from an organization that is such a hallmark of like masculinity and often toxic masculinity. Um, quote, more than a dozen NFL players have come out as gay after their careers were over. Former University of Missouri defensive star Michael Sam was the first openly gay football player ever selected in the NFL draft, going in the seventh round to the then St. Louis Rams in 2014, but he never made the final roster and retired in 2015, having never played in an NFL regular season game. Quote, in a post saying he was proud of Nassib, Hall of Famer Warren Moon said he played with several gay football players in a storied pro career that spanned from 1978 to 2000, but none were comfortable enough to go public. They were great teammates and obviously very talented. As long as they helped us win and were great teammates, their sexual preference was never a issue or an issue, Moon wrote. We live in a different time now where diversity is much more accepted. Cheers, Carl, and I hope this lets other athletes know it's okay to say who you are. And that is my story and happy Pride Month. Awesome. That was a great story. Yeah, it's a nice one. Shout out to him for being able to be so free because it's not easy, man. Mm -mm. Not in that environment either. That is like old school American like masculinity up in there. So very cool. Awesome. Well, that is it, folks, for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify or where you get your iTunes podcasts. Listen up next for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day. I just want to wish everybody a happy pride. I hope you have a safe and incredible weekend uh, celebrating your freedom. The final track today is called Shine on the World, and it is by Eric Bellinger. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Big buzzing, shit popping, we coming. Streets love them, hella fans like Mick loving. Easy does it, be fresh out the oven. So gully, but smooth tone. Don't like get me loving. started. I'm not afraid to let my light shine on the world. So, sister, let me see you follow. Your beauty could paint a picture with a smile on her. Should've been a scripture